Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I am very happy to welcome Professor Ali Kazmi to the SASPOD. He is Professor of History at LUMS in Lahore, Pakistan. He has his PhD from the South Asia Institute at Heidelberg University and had a postdoctoral fellowship at the Royal Holloway College at the University of London. Uh, he is now a visiting fellow at the Stanford Humanities Center, and I'm excited to talk about his current research project. Ali, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. And it's so lovely to be here with you. I'm, I'm very excited about your current project. I'm, I'm speaking as someone whose relationship to the natural world is at this point almost entirely mediated through technology. Uh, so if I want to know if it's raining, I will look at an app on my phone rather than out the window. And if the app says it's sunny, but it is in fact raining, I will be annoyed with the weather rather than with the app. Um, and similarly, if I want to know if it's full moon, I will look at the internet rather than at the sky. Uh, it is quite absurd. And so I was very curious to learn from you that there is uh, indeed a debate in Pakistan about the nature of the sighting of the new moon in terms of determining religious dates. So tell us more. Yes, so thank you so much. Uh, this is uh, part of, uh, of a larger project on the, 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 the ideas of citizenship and belonging in Pakistan. And as, as I argue that it's part of the, the, the post-colonial state formation that the state wants to appropriate a number of religious symbols. So in a way, the, the new national identity that emerges in Pakistan is in a way mediated through these, uh, 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 through various kinds of, of, of symbols. Um, that are appropriated. And one of them, very important one, is um, that of uh, a lunar calendar, because the, the Islamic calendar is a lunar calendar, which depends on, uh, on the sighting of, uh, of a new moon to regulate its cycle, right? So in a way, the nation state is about, uh, you know, uh, an organized space in temporality. So the, the, temporal, the temporal part of um, of the nation state is pretty, pretty much tied with the, the religious sensibilities which depend on the, 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 the regulation of, of, of the Islamic calendar. And it's, this is something which comes up every year in Pakistan. Anyone who has lived in Pakistan uh, during the, the month of Ramadan, closer to Eid, will be able to share with you these uh, stories, whether they are frustrating stories or exciting stories about this eagerness or anticipation yeah. About the about the new moon, about the sighting of the new moon. So to an extent, I mean, this is not something which is peculiar to Pakistan or the formation of Pakistan, but it is a theme which um, was will be uh, you know which uh, was picked up uh, by classical poets because the new moon is a rare sight. The new moon is, is hardly visible. The new moon brings happiness, uh, especially if it's announcing 
uh, Eid, right? So the, the, the classical Urdu poets would use, use that kind of a metaphor with, uh, with you know, with like seeing their beloved, right? So, yeah. um, right. So, so in, in, in case of Pakistan, from um, uh, from from very early on, you know, there was uh, there was this debate whether we should rely on technology, as you suggested. <laughs> Or you know we should stick with the the more traditional method of uh, sighting the new moon with you know with with naked eye, and uh, you know so the, the the Pakistani state was very eager that this should be regulated via you know scientific uh, methods because it's possible to calculate as it was argued the movement of stars and moons to the to the fraction of a second right so right. so in case you you make use of uh, of technology um, it will be possible to come up with uh, with with a hundred year calendar in advance right. in a way the lunar calendar will become like uh, essentially like uh, a georgian calendar in that sense um, but the the, the ulama they, they they insisted that no the tradition demands the, the the saying of the prophet demands that it should be seen with the naked eye and that is where you know the uh, the controversy lies so every year like i said close to eve people are waiting in anticipation whether the new moon has been sighted because then it depends uh, whether there's going to be Eids tomorrow or there's going to be an additional day of fasting. Yeah. And accordingly, then they decide whether I should go out for shopping or get a haircut or whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and this is this is not a, an issue that's particular to Pakistan. I mean, I also lived through that in India, um, and just, uh, obviously the outside of South Asia as well. So, how is your work? How how is the, how is this particular to Pakistan in terms of how you're looking at it? Okay, so in a way, you know, uh, uh, up till the the colonial period, there is a similar, obviously. Uh, kind of an experience, which is a shared experience between, you know, uh, Muslims um, um, all over South Asia. Uh, and then there is an experience which is um, peculiar to uh, other Muslim states, such as um, Turkey and Egypt. So I'll, I'll, you know, describe both of them. So in, during colonial South Asia, there, there does not seem to be any systematic kind of an attempt to, to regulate, you know, mm-hmm. th- th- this, this kind of whole practice, because the idea is that traditionally, even religiously speaking, uh, as the ulema argued, that that Eid is meant to be kind of a community-based celebration. Right. So there was no necessity to to take it to uh, a national level as such. So in the mid 1920s, 30s, as I've uh, uh, seen in various fatawa collections, that ulema were in fact uh, they said it's it's a waste of money. Why are you so bothered about uh, making sure that everyone gets to, to, to observe Eid on the same day. So they were not very eager about it. Uh, on the other hand, in case of uh, Egypt um, and Turkey, mm-hmm. um, which had a much longer kind of history of state formation, the, uh, they had a different kind of experience where the, the state gets to have a much strict control over the, the you know, over religious affair, or religious authority basically. Right, and um, um, so th- there are discussions. There are, especially in the, the early 20th century, there are discussions as to uh, what role should the technology play in in, in regulating um, lunar calendar. But eventually, it's through state authority that the calendar is, is 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 determined. Right. So there are two different kind of trajectories that we can we can see. 
in post 47 period then you know pakistan moves towards the centralization of uh, of, of lunar calendar whereas in india there remains an ongoing debate because there is a sizable Muslim minority, but there is no political power as such. So there are efforts at um, at various levels as to how there can be a more coordinated effort for for for, for making sure that there there is this general kind of agreement. But in case of India, the problem still remains because a large country. So there are uh, different time zones, and as, as as one terminology which comes up often in these debates that they have different horizons. Right. So the, the difference in the horizon makes it difficult to to have uh, a more uniform kind of an approach uh, and also how to translate into it, it translate into action because it requires recognition from the state level. If you want this kind of a um, um, of, of, uh, of uniformity. Right. So in the absence of that of, of recognition, the, 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 the attempt remains rather, you know, um, in the Individual, I would say, right? yeah. but there is a debate. I mean, the, the ulema in India also uh, have a very sustained kind of a debate in post forty seven period as to how you know uh, we should go about it. So you keep referring to the state, and I want to ask you more about that. And you say um, uh, Turkey and Egypt have a longer history of state formation, and uh, you refer to the control of the state in kind of creating uniformity in that. So what is the state's interest in controlling this calendar? Oh, yeah, that, thank you. That's a fantastic question. So, I mean, from, um, from uh, at least late 1950s, early 1960s, uh, with the onset of, of martial rule, there was this recognition that of recognizing the importance of religion in, um, in, in sort of... Uh, bringing about a certain kind of a de-ethnicized, homogenized national identity. That Islam can serve as kind of an overarching uh, identity, which, is, which has this kind of universalist kind of aspirations um, and which can overcome these ethnic linguistic differences where, but it has to be with the state which is able to, um, to utilize it in an instrumentalist kind of a fashion, right? And, and, and this led to a series of, of reforms, not just relating to, um, to calendar, but in terms of how, how Sufi shrines, for, example, for, for instance, they need to be regulated, how Sufi shrines can become, the idea being, oh, they, they are very useful and they have served a very important function in Islamic history, but look at them now, they are not really, you know, being, they're not serving, um, uh, they're not being very productive, they are redundant, they are, uh, they do not follow the spirit of Islam, right? So we need to move in, we need to um, regulate it. And uh, only once we are able to, to create that kind of a, a sanitized Sufi space, a shrine space, uh, we can revitalize spiritualist element of Islam for a more productive kind of nation making. Right, so it's not something which is peculiar to just the, the calendar, but to a range of other Islamic institutions and practices where the state thinks that there is a certain kind of value in, in using it for, uh, for enhancing its own authority, for creating a more homogenized kind of a citizenry. Okay. Okay, uh, understood. Um, I just also want to go back to the sighting of the moon. And, and I suppose this is part of the issue with it, because it was never clear to, clear to me who has to do the sighting, who sees it, and then who, yeah. So can you say a little bit more about that? 
Yes. So eventually, you know, it goes through various uh, iterations. Basically, there was one committee in the 1960s, then there's another one in the 70s. And since the 1980s, there is a more kind of a uh, of a persistent kind of a, um, of a pattern. And then there is some recent controversies. But eventually, the, the modern day uh, version of it is it comprises completely of uh, uh, mainly of, of ulema, all men from uh, various uh, um, sectarian um, um, backgrounds mm-hmm. and uh, with with representation of um, of um, um, certain uh, scientific organizations um, this, from space program even navy i think air force and yeah so there, there are they have they have their input they provide data so the idea the, the way it works is so this the scientific data helps sort of uh, identify that this is the possibility that the new moon will be formed on this day at this time. And the, the, the chances are that it will be visible at this particular place in, right. in Pakistan, right? right? And then the ulema, they, they get together um, and then they, they also try to see it themselves, but they use a telescope. That's also kind of a, ah. of a, of a disagreement. This is not, is it ah. naked eye, right? Or it's not. <laughs> Uh, and then they are they, they receive uh, information from uh, and reports from all over the country. So they have zonal committees, they have provincial committees. So they also collect evidence, testimonies. Uh, they pass it on to the central committee, and then the central committee uh, evaluates those uh, those testimonies, right? So so and then then on the basis of that, they decide whether the the testimony that they have received is trustworthy or not. Uh, does that sort of um, um, complement the scientific data that we have? Wow. But you know, it's not the scientific data which can alone determine. But you know, the the testimony has to, in a way, complement what the kind of scientific data that they have, and then they decide uh, whether the moon has been sighted or not. Um, that's uh, that's very yeah. eloquent. You you paint a beautiful picture of how uh, complicated that is, and I imagine the the, the feedback uh, when you say they have to get all these reports. These are these days also transmitted through technology. Presumably, these are phone calls saying, "Hey, we saw it," or whatever. Yes. Um, I'm was- glad that you pointed this out. I mean, I'm glad you pointed this out because that's again controversial. I mean, or at least it used to be controversial, because the idea was that just like a court of law does not accept testimony via, or used to, it did not allow, uh, uh, you know, uh, testimony via video conferencing or Zoom or telephone. Right. Similarly, um, uh, we cannot accept or rely on transmission of these, uh, uh, of these reports via telegraph, right? Because the idea is that we should be able to interrogate the person. Right. Who is, who is, who's conveying these reports. So I'm, I'm glad that you, <laughs> now I can see in terms of the 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 pool of modernity, uh, so to speak, and the importance of the states uh, and and this kind of insertion of quote unquote scientific methods. Your work as a historian is relevant, but there's clearly, uh, and maybe I'm speaking as someone with a background in religious studies, but to me, there seems to be a huge religious studies component in this. So how does that, um, how does that sit with your work? Yes, I mean, it's, um, um, since as, as a historian, I have uh, generally worked on, on Islamic movements, reform movements. So I'm, uh, in terms of my method, I, I differ, right? So as a historian, my method is different. 
but i'm i'm comfortable dealing with that kind of uh, of, of literature or that kind of uh, of archive that uh, that it, that exists um so so in that sense i i, I work with the fatawa collections uh religious journals uh, and all these aspects different aspects of religious discourse about modernity about reform about you know um about tradition that is prevalent in 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 pakistan so the so my 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 sort of uh, uh, it's more of a methodological difference i would say um and while while the material or the archive more or less remains the same okay um now you've mentioned earlier that this part this research is part of a a broader project looking at citizenship uh, and presumably this is again where the state formation uh, comes in so let us zoom out now um and somehow that feels like a pun on the telescope sighting the new moon but <laughs> <laughs> let us zoom out uh, and and can you tell us more about this uh, this larger citizenship project Yes, so I mean the the, the inspiration it basically came from uh, a number of works uh, in the fantastic Indian scholar uh, Professor Jayal, who has worked on the ideas of it's called citizenship and its discontents in India. Um, so, yeah. which made me think that you know there is a uh, there is a need for a for an intellectual history of uh, of sorts, which looks at debates in uh, about citizenship in in post-colonial context, non-European contexts. Uh, as to how they have uh, evolved, and they address larger questions of uh, of membership in a in a political community, right? And and to combine it with uh, let's say the works of um, of Hannah Arendt, as to you know the, the uh, because I see this kind of tension in in in, a, in her very famous kind of formulation about the right to have rights, um, or, or or this distinction between uh, you know um, a citizen or a nation or, or belonging to um, that, that rights being sort of uh, tied with the idea of, of belonging in a way, right? So it's not, it's in, in that sense, uh, um, what, what sort of enables this claim to have rights in a political community and how then uh, that notion is, is played out in, in, in post-colonial contexts uh, with, uh, with a very different kind of, of, of setting, with a different kind of a, of, a, of, a, of a political baggage and a different kind of, uh, um, ethnic, um, um, ethnic linguistic groups, uh, you know, with which the, the post-colonial state engages uh, to arrive at a notion of, uh, uh, of, of of political equality, basically, right? So my interest then is in in like you know what is the notion of political equality, whereby despite all these differences in ethnicities, languages, religious affiliations. So, what is that common idiom of or language of or expression of particular quality, uh, which is then uh, uh, which is then debated and contested, right? Uh, and and since there is so much of of disparity, there's so much of of difference. Uh, so there's no singular notion then which which emerges. And and in a way, that disagreement is is not something bad. That's it. It is uh, generative. It's it's a creative process. Um, as long as you know it, it remains within the sort of uh, uh, limits of of a, of, a, of, a, of a democratic dispensation, um, so which has happened in case of India, where the republic has, was formed very early, the constitution served as some kind of a, you know, whether you agree with it or not, but some kind of foundational document. Whereas in case of Pakistan, it did not lead, did not have a similar kind of a trajectory because there could not be an agreement. Mm -hmm. On on what it means to have political equality, 
mm-hmm. right? Even for uh, even uh, even the basic kind of political equality in terms of voting right, um, because there were distinctions between uh, Muslim citizens and non-believer uh, citizens. Um, but unlike other works which sort of discard the the intellectual content of these debates, what I'm trying to do is to engage with the constitutional assembly debates and and a lot of other material which shows that it's it was not a foregone kind of a conclusion that Pakistan simply became an Islamic state and that was end of the story, that there was only going to be one kind of a Muslim citizen. No, there is a lot of uh, uh, debate, there's a lot of contestation, and that is the kind of, uh, of, uh, of history that I'm trying to retrieve in, in my project. So you mentioned earlier, uh, when we first started talking about the sighting of the new moon, that that poets would refer to it. And, yeah. and it's this kind of, I mean, I don't know if it's a, a, a literary trope, but it's very evocative. Um, and so when I hear you speak about, about trying to create a kind of political equality, um, I don't know if this question makes sense, but where do the poets sit in this? Like, where is the space for just a personal engagement with these uh, with these religious experiences? Do they all have to be steamrolled into one national experience of what it means to be a, a citizen of Pakistan? Okay, yeah, no, I get that. That's yeah, that's that's very good. I I, I would say okay. So, I, in my opinion, then poetry, in fact, then enables. Or becomes the the, the vehicle of, uh, of 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 a, of a, of an expression of resistance, because mm. the state the state is trying to to stream rule, right? Um, you know, and there, there's to be a certain kind of homogeneity. Um, then, in in that sense, this is why uh, there, there is a whole vibrant tradition of uh, of, of of poetic resistance resistance through poetry. Uh, whether it's Faz Ahmed Faz, whether it's Habib Jaleb, whether you know Femi Daryas, whether the feminist poets or Marxist poets, all of them. Um, so that is, uh, and from very early on, and there is a sense of disillusionment that there has not been this, that, uh, that, that the questions of political and social equality have not been addressed. And then they are, uh, uh, in, in, instead there is, uh, there is, uh, uh, you know, um, an attempt to, to sort of, uh, uh, to 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 bring in religion as this kind of a, of a force which does not allow any kind of uh, uh, any kind of uh, a space. So with, within that kind of uh, uh, framework, then poetry becomes this this expression uh, through which uh, the intelligentsia or even political leadership they they challenge uh, the, this this project um, and right. to 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 sort of project a certain kind of uh, various kinds of um, or alternative futures of possibilities that can be, you yeah. know, or, or, or a very hard hitting critique of what the state uh, uh, is doing. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And uh, now I know that you are um, looking at projects that, that may herald more of a shift towards looking at literature. Uh, when we spoke earlier, you, you talked about subverting the archive. Uh, and you also said, I'm not sure if this is your quote or you were quoting somebody else, but fiction has a better representation of the past. I, mean, I just love that. Uh, can you say more? Well, these are just fancy words which academics have to say all the time to, to, to sound cool. <laughs> it works. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's um, so the, the thing is that um, um, the, the, all this internal critique of, of history and historiography that it um, 
from 19th century onwards, this, this certain uh, fascination with, with the archive as a positivist, uh, uh, you know, affirmative, affirmation of, of truth, which effectively has silenced uh, so many other ways in, in which history uh, could have been it, or, or, or the histories of, uh, of, of non-literate cultures, of, um, uh, of, of non-elite subaltern groups, you know, right. which do not have that kind of an archive in which information about the past can be recorded. But they have been active players in history. They have been expressing their sense of or idea of the past to various kinds of whether, whether they are written texts or performative texts. That's why we need to, to broaden our scope of the archive by critiquing the very notion of, of the archive. So that's an epistemic kind of a, of a critique, uh, which allows for a more uh, a different kind of a conceptual history. And this is, uh, uh, so, so basically I take inspiration from, from um, um, Hayden White's work. And because Hayden White is, is, is this great theorist who would, would argue that, you know, history is, is kind of a, is, has this pretense uh, of, of being the sole objective uh, claimant uh, about uh, about historical past. Right. You know, there's this truth uh, that is claimed by by historians. That is that you know there there are other ways in which uh, which past can be represented. So history is only one of the ways in which you can represent the past. There are other ways in which people have been understanding the past, recording it, expressing it, living it. Right. So that is my uh, my 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 sort of fascination now that you know what are those other other ways in which and fiction being one of them poetry in fact i'm more interested in poetry poetic performances being one of the ways in which predominantly subaltern groups have been uh, you know engaging with the past um, and and expressing it and articulating it right so that's um, what i would like to do next and to what extent is your time at Stanford, other than presumably it allows you a little breathing space from the, the general duties of being a professor at a, a, a large and, and very successful institution, uh, how is being at Stanford helpful for you? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating experience in the sense that, you know, uh, every day I, I get to meet someone who's working on um, artificial intelligence and a feminist critique of artificial intelligence and, you know, uh, 16th century uh, Guatemala music. And, you know, so there's a range of, of scholarly pursuits and intellectual activities, uh, which and these are themes on which you would not find people working in, in, in Pakistan, right? So, so that gives me a chance to, to talk to people from a range of disciplinary backgrounds. Yeah. And already, I mean, this has helped me in so many ways because I, they, they, they would cite a text which I would, which I had not read, right? So then I will, you know, which has actually helped me with my with my current project, right? So and these are works which I would otherwise not have uh, come to know about. Mm -hmm. So so and, and humanities center especially is is, is brings together like so many other departments um, uh, at Stanford. And uh, because they all use um, Stanford uh, um, Humanity Center as a space to, to organize various events. Mm -hmm. So um, I get to know about, um, uh, you know, there's a seminar on decolonizing the archives or Afro-Asian studies or, you know, uh, gender security studies. So it, it becomes a hub of intellectual activities. Yeah. And that 
is uh, yeah, that's the most fun part. It's fantastic. And and just to clarify for our audience, uh, Professor Kazmi is a fellow at the Stanford Humanities Center, where there's a very strong focus on uh, bringing people together to talk about their research and, and so that people can uh, interact with all different uh, ways of looking at the world, I guess. This is all COVID safe, uh, I hasten to add. So you will be going back to LUMS at the end of the academic year, I, I guess. Uh, and I think you mentioned that you have a digital humanities project lined up as well yeah this is something which which we've been doing in collab I, i've been doing in collaboration with with another colleague at lums uh, dr ali reza um, the idea was that um, that you know as as researchers we explore our archive we collect material we write our dissertation we write a book and mostly then we don't use that material but it's not we're not always able to to, to exhaust it uh, completely it still has a lot of potential which can be mm -hmm. used by other scholars. So, so we started requesting uh, scholars that why don't you share your data with us? So for instance, when I worked on, on, a, uh, on a particular aspect, there was an anti-Ahmadi movement I worked on. So the entire legal archive, which I had, so we got it scanned and we uh, put it online. Similarly, there's another fantastic book on, on partition uh, by Dr. Ishtiaq Ahmad, for which he had conducted like over 400 interviews of partition survivors. So he generously offered us, you know, the entire tapes, um, 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 audio tapes of, of those interviews. So we, you know, uh, cleaned it up, pre prepared a, you know, specific kind of a, of a metadata for for all those interviews. So so this and and then there is uh, a French scholar who uh, who worked on uh, on Punjabi literature mm -hmm. um, uh, and Punjabi magazines uh, from uh, 1940s onwards. So he was very kind enough to to give us and share all the scanned copies of those Punjabi journals with us, right? Uh, and then in addition to that, there is, uh, uh, so this is the kind of uh, of, a, of an archive, right? Then there are, there are specific projects in which we, we, we want to make use of, uh, of, of, of technology to, uh, for, for mapping purposes, because there is, uh, I'll give an example. So we mm -hmm. have one project on, 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 on partition violence. Right? the abduction of women and children, which took place in 1947. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, a, a huge uh, kind of, uh, of, of a database whereby we're trying to, to you know, pin all those reported incidents about abductions to generate a kind of a heat map, mm -hmm. right? And then once that, that map is complete, there will be very, they already are, but there will be more obvious connections between reported incidents of, of violence and abduction as to why there is a certain kind of a concentration in certain areas. So for instance, why, like, why is it that more abductions are happening, let's say in Patiala, because you know, there was a more organized um, uh, Patiala army which was involved. Why is it that certain kind of a, um, of a town is, is more notorious because it's close to a, maybe a market or a railway line, you don't know, right? So once, once this, this data is, is accumulated, it's mapped, uh, it will help see uh, the violence, the, the, the scope of violence and uh, a, a more kind of a possible sociological explanation as to why violence was more widespread in certain areas than the others, right? So that's the, the kind of digital humanities project that we are, that we are involved in. So back to technology mediating experience then, that's, we've gone, we have become full circle in this conversation. <laughs> Yes, yes, you can. Yeah, as a, yeah, using technology to to tell stories, basically, uh, right. to narrativize it visually, 
otherwise i mean no one reads uh, boring books um, so that's i you know in, in that sense there are uh, archival documents pictures videos uh, animations and um, this is in a way we're trying to to sort of uh, engage with a with a larger with a larger audience uh, you know I was talking to a colleague earlier how we're looking forward to uh, the winter break. This podcast will actually come out just after the winter break, but we're recording just before it. And so uh, this colleague and I were discussing how we were looking forward to reading a quote unquote boring books. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But of course, um, you know, these these multi um, kind of platform archives are really fantastic way of telling stories and and also being able to maintain information that otherwise might yeah. get lost. So uh, it's wonderful to hear. You've got so many projects going on. Um, thank you for making time for us. I really enjoyed our conversation today. No, no, thank you so much. It's, it's a fantastic uh, platform and I'm so, so glad to, to be part of it. Um, it was really great talking to you. Uh, as always, I want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the music that comes at the uh, intro and outro to the Saspod and um, Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come, fair.